2: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented.
0: I'm going to miss
2: being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels.
0: I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm
3: Mungoin, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit
2: developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. I'll see you in court. The EU takes legal action, again, against the UK over its unilateral move to interpret the Northern Ireland Protocol.
0: We'll explore what the legal action means, how it came about and what difference it might make. And this might hurt a bit.
3: The EU threatens to curb vaccine exports and escalates yet another simmering row with the UK, which has spilled over into the Brexit debate.
2: And London starts to tell us what global Britain is all about with a new post-Brexit foreign and defence policy. And David Frost makes it clear the revolution is only just beginning. And we'll hear
3: about what Brexit means for Irish companies in the UK and beyond three months in. But first, Tony, to that legal action we mentioned in the introduction at the top. Give us the background to it and how the UK found out it had been initiated during the week.
2: So on March 3rd, column, uh, as you recall, the UK announced a series of unilateral measures on the protocol, meaning they would extend until the 1st of October, a grace period that had been due to elapse on the 1st of April, a three-month grace period. The UK said, actually, we're going to extend that unilaterally until the 1st of October. And that grace period was basically making life easier for supermarkets in Northern Ireland to import large volumes of food from Great Britain without having to fill in thousands of... Export health certificates. This is a a cumbersome, expensive formality that you need to fill in if you're bringing food into the EU from outside. And of course, Northern Ireland is still technically in the EU as far as the single market is concerned, and GB will be outside. So, this had been agreed by both sides back in December that they would get a three month grace period in order, uh, according to the EU at the time for supermarkets to adapt to this new operation, these new formalities, and perhaps to develop other supply chains, perhaps from the south of Ireland. Um, But uh, lo and behold, on the 3rd of March, the UK said, well, we're going to extend this ourselves um, uh, and tell stakeholders in Northern Ireland that they can keep doing what they're doing without these formalities until the 1st of October. They also extended a grace period for express parcel services without having to have other formalities there, and uh, another grace period for bulbs, uh, for plants, for plants with soil on them, for agricultural machinery with perhaps bits of soil on them as well, because normally any of that stuff coming into the EU from outside, if it's got soil on it, then there's a biosecurity hazard. Uh, so that f- that would normally fall under EU food safety and animal health and plant health rules. But again, the UK saying, no, we're going to decide ourselves that this doesn't need any of that paperwork again until the 1st of October, at, at least. Um, so this Prompted a very sharp, immediate uh, reaction from the EU saying, No, you're breaching the protocol, you're breaching the article of good faith in the withdrawal agreement. Uh, And they signalled fairly quickly that there would be legal action taken. Now, it took a while for that legal action to uh, be worked up, uh, but it was served on Monday of this week. Two letters, one letter basically initiating the Infringement proceeding that could end up in the European Court of Justice. A second political letter addressed by Maros Shevchevich, the EU's co chair of the Joint Committee, to his opposite number, David Frost, spelling out why the UK was in breach of international law for the second time, in breach of the good faith provisions of the protocol and the withdrawal agreement, and basically saying, look, You know, we have to agree these things together. You can't go off on a solo run. Some of the things that you've introduced, we hadn't even been discussing. uh, And yet yet you have said by yourselves that this is how things are going to be. So we need you to change course. Don't violate what you've already signed up to. But I think, and, and this is the crucial part, the door was left open for talks to continue.
3: Sean, how did it go down, the receipt of the letter? Was there much coverage of it? Did it ruffle many feathers?
0: No, it didn't ruffle many feathers at all. There was uh, much flag flying uh, here in um, London uh, and I guess the rest of the UK, but certainly in political uh, London uh, because they were all focused on global Britain and this new... Uh, strategic policy that the government uh, launched this week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later, I guess. Uh, but no, there wasn't um, much. It, it had been anticipated and uh, you know, nobody really cares that there's a, a, an EU process going on against them. So what, uh, many of them would say, Uh, Let's just get on with it and be pragmatic. Uh, There was uh, some follow-up by The Guardian, an interview by Dan Boffey, with uh, Mara Shevchevich following some remarks uh, uh, by Dominic Raab, who'd uh, accused the EU of trying to uh, erect a border down the Irish Sea, in which um, Mr. Shevcevic got slightly less than diplomatic and uh, accused Dominic Raab of having a total misunderstanding of the Brexit deal, based on what he had said. And uh, he said, comments by Mr. Rab and others uh, lead to a dwindling of faith internationally in the British government, he's quoted as saying in this Guardian interview. Uh, that's what I feel when I talk to my international partners. It's what I felt like when I talk to the Friends of Ireland on Capitol Hill in the US. Statements like I saw yesterday from the Foreign Secretary Rab, who, if I remember correctly, was also for a couple of months in charge of the Brexit negotiations, that it's the EU that wants to build a border between GB and Northern Ireland, and that it's unacceptable. Uh, That raises a lot of questions because this is, if I put it very diplomatically, a total misunderstanding of the deal that we have signed. And then he went on patiently explaining the protocol is uh, and what it's meant to do. Having a, a bit of a lash there. But also reaching out to David Frost, whom he'd met several years back and uh, said the last time they'd spoken, uh, or the first time they'd spoken, they'd been very polite, very courteous conversations, that they both have a job to do, uh, but he has to insist on his side, most vehemently, that we respect the deals that we have signed. So there you go. It's business as usual in the... Uh, British-European relationship kind of at each other's throats in the friendliest, most diplomatic way possible.
3: Yeah, one of the other things that doesn't seem to have cut through either, Sean, I appreciate you saying that that, that didn't get much coverage in the UK. But just today... The um, chairman of the Loyalist Communities Council, which represents the views of Loyalist paramilitaries, David Campbell, said basically what he'd said before, about 10 days ago, saying that there's a window of opportunity for constructive dialogue and there needs to be workable solutions on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Otherwise, there's a Pandora's box which could lead to significant protest and the bringing down of the Northern Ireland executive. When he said it the first time... It didn't seem to cause much reaction in Westminster. He said it again today. Again, there's not much reaction. Is it cutting through at all? Are the concerns of Northern Unionists cutting through at all? Or does the UK government see itself as having acted in accordance with the wishes of those constituents by extending the grace periods out unilaterally.
0: I kind of get the impression watching the government over here that Northern Ireland is such a small thing and when they are pitching themselves as global Britain sending aircraft carriers off to the Pacific to stand up to China for values this is a problem to be dealt with by the Northern Ireland office so as far as they're concerned it's primarily Brandon Lewis's problem within the Westminster Parliament any of the cut through that happens is coming bleeding across from the opposition benches where the DUP sit uh, onto the government side via the European Research Group, who are sympathetic to the, uh, to the DUP's position uh, and uh, are saying, look, we were promised by Boris before uh, we voted uh, on these, these deals that they would get rid of this protocol after a year or two. Uh, it was only in there for, for uh, window decoration uh, to get the deal through. But uh, our understanding is that he's going to get rid of it eventually and he ought to get on with that. So there's a little bit of rumbling on the government backbenchers, but it's fairly esoteric stuff. And it really doesn't make it much into the, uh, to the general media at all. There's plenty of other stuff going on here. COVID, of course, dominating all the headlines. Bits of Harry and Meghan stuff going on. Uh, and all this global Britain stuff and it's just not cutting through at all.
3: Tony, does it make any headway in the European Union then the concerns of loyalists stroke unionists because obviously it's been repeated before that you know there was every effort made to avoid a land border on the island of Ireland because that would threaten the Good Friday Agreement if it was introduced because of how it might play into Republican and Nationalist concerns but the concerns that have been raised by loyalists and, and unionists does it impinge on the thinking at all of the European Union? Do they feel they have looked after that in the best possible way with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Is there any openness for further dialogue in order to come to the practical solutions that people are looking for?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say two things to that column. First of all, yes, you do hear um, from time to time over the past four years, the sentiment that, you know, it, it, it's a pity that you know when we are dealing with northern ireland we're dealing with the irish government we're dealing with stakeholders but you recall that throughout that whole period of the backstop and uh, what followed the backstop the northern ireland executive wasn't up and running there was there was nobody to talk to at political level in northern ireland who were you know active ministers or actively running the the, the shop. Uh, I mean, they were able to talk to civil servants and they, they had numerous meetings with stakeholders. I remember speaking to one very senior member of Michel Barnier's team uh, when he went on a visit to the, the border. He went to Dundalk and then went to the border and she was talking about you know, looking over the border into Northern Ireland um, and thinking, you know, we need to hear more about what's going on there. Um, And to be fair, Michel Barnier did meet members of the unionist uh, community, um, as well as the nationalist community in different uh, parts of Northern Ireland. Um, Bringing things more up to date, it's it's an interesting point because there was a discussion about uh, a week ago in Brussels among EU ambassadors with you know taking stock of of the, the UK's unilateral action and taking stock of the legal action that was about to be announced and um, this week and there there was strong support for Maroš Shevchevich to keep talking to stakeholders in Northern Ireland businesses unionist groups unionist politicians and also a view that member states should now begin some outreach as well, not leaving it all up to the European Commission, because, of course, the Commission are the people who have to kind of run the protocol uh, from a legal uh, point of view. And there was a feeling that member states should now be kind of pulling their weight in doing some outreach to northern ireland as well
3: in, in what is is that directed at ireland specifically at the the outreach to northern ireland or is it all member states of the european union no it's all because, member states you know, when they were negotiating the brexit agreement it was all can this all be done through the commission please in the interests of coherence and unity to look for a member state by member state approach is a kind of a departure from that
2: well no i mean i mean the way the the, the way the EU does treaties is that member states give the Commission a mandate to negotiate those treaties and that's what happened with both the withdrawal agreement and the future relationship, the trade and cooperation agreement and at each turn member states are kind of invited to buy into the Commission's position and and of course you know, Michel Barnier had the strong support of member states throughout as negotiator but this is something different. This was more of, now that we have the protocol up and running and we can see the difficulties there, maybe member states should also get involved in trying to help the process. Now, I was trying to follow this up to see what exactly did that. does that mean in practical terms? Um, and what appears to be the case so far is that there may be some approach out of Dublin, in other words, EU ambassadors in Dublin, May get involved in some some shape or form. I don't know. Perhaps uh, some kind of forum or some kind of inter- interface that they may have with stakeholders in Northern Ireland, political, business, farming, etc., etc. It's all a little bit embryonic at the moment. But certainly that was the view um, that you know the Commission is going to be running the future relationship apparatus. That's like this huge, sprawling bureaucracy of 19 subcommittees that's going to basically implement the free trade agreement. Uh, And Maros Shevchevich has, frankly, uh, an awful lot on his plate. So it would be helpful if if member states could play some kind of part in trying to... I mean, the whole idea is that the protocol is not the problem, it's the solution. And we need to find ways to make that solution kind of workable and sellable uh, to unionists. But clearly, that's a you know, a fairly big, uh, big job.
0: One voice that uh, did intrude into the debate on this during the week was uh, Peter Mandelson. You might remember him as a minister in Tony Blair's government, but also as a former EU trade commissioner. Uh, he was speaking at a book launch during the week, and he homed in on this issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, and saying it's all very well to be looking at the. Uh, great opportunities that Brexit may present to Britain and he does think there are opportunities in it but uh, he said if the Northern Ireland protocol doesn't work then the EU-UK relationship won't work and pointing at David Frost saying he has a very great responsibility to put things right in in the job that he has uh, now got Uh, because as uh, Mr Mandelson said well Lord Mandelson as it is now and welcoming Lord Frost as a fellow member of the unelected upper chamber uh, he said the tensions Uh, that have been created uh, between the opportunities of leaving the European Union and the tensions that that has created inside the UK Union with issues in Northern Ireland and Scotland. This is something that really has to be addressed, he says. It's something that the government here have to give a lot more thought to. And he, speaking as a unionist, somebody who believes in the United Kingdom, uh, says that it's really important that they address those tensions uh, and get to the heart of them. And first place to start is with that Northern Ireland protocol. So yes, at the political nerd level, uh, this is an issue and it's a hot potato, but a lot of them would rather the hot potato was being handled by somebody else. I suspect. And for the outside world, outside the the Westminster bubble, uh, it's you know it's a, it's a minor issue. It's one of those many things that just bubble away in the background that people don't really pay too much attention to until it explodes.
2: Yeah. So I mean, just just to wrap up on the the legal action, like where where do we go from here? Because again, this seemed like another crisis in the relationship. On paper, on the first of April. The EU will regard uh, Northern Ireland uh, and GB suppliers as legally obliged to put in place uh, export health certificates, uh, other checks and controls. Um, But the UK will be saying to stakeholders in Northern Ireland, no, you are to go about your business without any of that stuff uh, until October. So that is a very difficult situation for Northern Ireland civil servants who are running the Department of Agriculture, who are supposed to be running the ports and those checks and controls, and for supermarkets as well. Are supermarkets going to be breaking the law from the 1st of April? That's a very legally unclear situation to be in. Having said all that, the UK is still insisting that it isn't breaking international law or the protocol. And the reason they're saying that is that what they've done is taken a sort of semi-emergency short-term practical step to make sure that supermarket shelves don't go bare on the 1st of April. But more importantly, what they're saying is we are still on the road to complying with the protocol. We, we intend to fully implement the protocol. And indeed, this short-term measure will help us to implement the protocol and from the EU side, you know, there are clear signals that they don't want this to spin out of control and that they want to get back into process as, as quickly as possible. Now, the EU has asked the UK for a roadmap setting out clearly how they're going to implement the protocol, how they're going to implement what was agreed in December around those grace periods. They want milestones, they want deliverables. And on that basis, then the EU will agree to start that process going again. So that would mean talks between experts on both sides uh, on the SPS uh, food safety front. Then that would lead to a a specialised committee meeting, which of course is the officials, the technical side meeting in in a formal setting. And that in turn then feeds into the joint committee, which takes the big political decisions. Now, none of that is going to be ready for the 1st of April, obviously, because that's next Friday. But you can see how there is a quiet choreography getting underway. The UK would have to produce this roadmap on that basis if they're clear about how they intend to implement the protocol between now and whenever. um, Then we could see Uh, an informal meeting between David Frost and Maros Shevchevich to give the thing a little bit of a nudge. And then we get back into trying to fix this on the ground. What that signals to me is that if the UK is being honest about about this roadmap and their intentions, then, again, that kind of cuts unionism out because unionism is now saying the protocol has to go completely. And on that basis... The Northern Ireland Agriculture Minister, Gordon Lyons, is saying he's not going to continue building these permanent border control posts because if the protocol is going to go, then why waste public money on these posts? So you can see how, you know, if if the UK is being honest to... Um, the EU and implementing the protocol, then they're not really being honest to the DUP in kind of hinting with a nod and a wink that they could ditch the protocol through Article 16 themselves. Um, But I think it's important to say that You know, there is a choreography in place. The legal action will, of course, continue. But it, you know, legal action from the EU kind of wends its merry way. Yeah, it it wends its merry way through the procedures. And then if the UK comes back into compliance, then the legal action uh, quietly withers on the vine.
3: Right. Well, last week we were talking about things that were coming up on the on the radar. And Sean, you were mentioning that St. Patrick's Day was the big deal coming up over the past week, and indeed it was. There was a couple of things. Not only did Michael Martin meet Joe Biden, not only was there a reaffirmation of support to the Good Friday Agreement, the White House said it wouldn't be taking sides. But in the Senate, there was a bit more side-taking going on. Senator Bob Menendez, the Democrat, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Republican Senator Susan Collins, with 13 of their Senate colleagues, said that the Good Friday Agreement was a historic accomplishment that established a framework for sustainable peace and it also talked about supporting subsequent agreements including the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, that surely would have raised a few eyebrows perhaps that there was an element of the Irish lobbying paying off on St Patrick's
0: Day. Is that still a source of concern? Well, I don't think the British establishment think there's much to be gained by uh, trying to have a a pop at Ireland on St Patrick's Day and that uh, Irish-American relationship there, um, you know, this time and a place for um, standing up and, and having your say on these things as well. And that probably was not uh, the time uh, to be trying to do it. They let it go through uh, in terms of the, their own strategic position. Yes, of course, they recognize the uh, issues with the Biden regime. Uh, they see it as a, a, a very much an allied regime on very many issues notably on climate change and on the China position and Britain wants to be helpful in this global vision that President Biden has but then he's also attracted some fire this week just this very day Friday the uh, Daily Telegraph is blaming uh, Joe Biden for vaccine shortages uh, because the uh, defense acts that they're using in America prevent the export of certain components Uh, that go into the manufacture of vaccines, apparently, and uh, the Telegraph are blaming that on the slowdown in the vaccine supplies from India, as well as blaming the Indian government itself for vaccine nationalism, uh, thus adding... Uh, India and the United States onto the enemies list over vaccines, which also includes the European Union uh, and the French, of course. So there's hardly anybody on the uh, UN Security Council that hasn't been uh, pinged for vaccine nationalism at this stage. They, uh, of course, never uh, blame themselves for it, even though uh, they can't explain why there's been no vaccines exported out of Britain. They say, of course, there's no export ban uh, out of here. But that issue is, uh, of course, still simmering away Uh, and still adding to tensions there. But we did see some signs from Boris Johnson trying to damp it down in relation to India uh, yesterday, uh, saying they're making uh, uh, heroic efforts to produce vaccines, uh, as indeed they are. But, you know, in the case of India, they've 3% of their population vaccinated. Uh, In Britain, it's a much bigger percentage, about a third of the population vaccinated here. Who needs the vaccine more? Uh, You might say, well, probably the Indians at this stage. uh, they are trying to keep it in their own country uh, and they are the, the biggest producers of, of vaccine, the biggest single uh, producer in this uh, Serum Institute, uh, then it's perhaps understandable. Um, Boris Johnson, of course, uh, supposedly heading to India next month. This is his first big foreign policy visit uh, post Brexit. Uh, it will be the very month that the supplies from India add to the supply crunch in Britain. And uh, their first real setback uh, in this vaccination campaign, which has been tremendously successful uh, in the country, um, that is now going to be biting in the very month that he's in India. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if it crops up for, uh, uh, as an issue for him there. But I suspect he's playing the longer game on this one. Uh, there's no point in bashing India right now if you're trying to make India a strategic partner of britain the british will be looking at the indian relationship with china and thinking there's opportunities for the sale of high technology equipment here Uh, and that's very much uh, what they were announcing as part of this strategic review uh, in the country having effectively an industrial policy that will put a lot of government money into uh, both basic scientific research something dominic cummings has championed uh, but also uh, advanced technology research in terms of defense projects uh, looking at uh, DARPA in uh, America as an example there something that they've been doing in the European Union as well uh, trying to get more government money channeled in through defense uh, under the defense heading into scientific research to try and gain or regain uh, technological leadership in the world. And then uh, from there, you start selling it on to, uh, to other markets. So that is very much the, the global Britain view, which is being articulated really for the first time. It's just been a slogan uh, up until now. Uh, now uh, we're starting to see them put some flesh onto the bones of that uh, in terms of their uh, outlook on the world, uh, but also their uh, defence and foreign policy Uh, positioning. The other thing that uh, they've done, of course, is uh, invest in more nuclear weapons. They're going to increase the uh, the nuclear stockpile. That did get them uh, some condemnation from the United Nations earlier in the week. Uh, But again, not an issue that cut through at all into uh, the media coverage uh, back home in Britain. Um, So they had a a fairly good week in terms of uh, presenting themselves and having something to say for themselves uh, on this Global Britain slogan. Tony, vaccines was another issue that dominated the week and the ongoing
3: friction, the AstraZeneca-related friction and the import-export-related friction over vaccines. Ursula von der Leyen saying during the week that Europe would consider its position with regard to vaccine exports to countries that were themselves potential exporters but that weren't exporting.
2: Yeah, so this is all in the context of the supply of vaccines to the European Union falling short in the first quarter, especially AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca was supposed to deliver 90 million doses in the first quarter. They're only going to deliver 30. Uh, In the second quarter, they were due to deliver 180 million doses. Uh, They're only going to deliver 70. And of course, there is a a clamour, a hue and cry from across the European Union, notwithstanding the problems with the concerns over blood clots and some vaccine hesitancy in some countries. But with the UK variant and the third and fourth waves taking hold in quite a few European countries now, there is real concern that vaccines need to start being delivered. And if it turns out that the EU is exporting vaccines around the world, but not getting much love in return, then Ursula von der Leyen said that they would look at all the tools available to them nothing was being ruled out and she talked about article 122 of the european treaty which provides the eu with exceptional powers to uh, to restrict exports uh, if there are clear societal and economic uh, difficulties Um, this apparently was was invoked once before during the oil crisis in the early 70s, Um, but it was quite an escalation by Ursula von der Leyen. In fact, she was saying, look, Europe has exported 44 million vaccines to 31 countries. Europe has exported 10 million doses um, of Pfizer-BioNTech to the UK, and yet uh, the UK has not exported any AstraZeneca doses to the EU. Now, of course, people are saying that it's not the EU who exports, it's companies but, of course, the net effect is that the EU is suffering, member states are suffering from a shortage of vaccines. So it is getting, again, into this fairly toxic debate about vaccine nationalism. And, of course, that threat to tighten export restrictions using this particular Article 122 uh, provoked a fairly um, colourful response from the UK. Dominic Rabb, who we mentioned earlier, pretty much likening the EU to a tin pot dictatorship. Um, Some of the press coverage in the UK was quite uh, interesting in that they referred to the German Commission president using wartime powers. Um, You could see what buttons were being pressed there and were being pressed in return. But I I would have to say that her particular move on export curbs does not enjoy universal support. Um, Ireland has real concerns about this because of the nature of global supply chains, bits and pieces of vaccines get made uh, all over the place and if you start restricting exports then you could run into trouble by companies, countries that are start to refuse to uh, send vital supplies and component parts to Europe uh, if there is an escalation of some kind of trade war.
3: As the UK is finding out with regard to India, Sean, just how delicate those supply chains are and Whatever about the dog whistling about a German using wartime powers, the anonymous briefings coming from UK government sources cited in some UK media that the EU's treatment of AstraZeneca, basically saying that the EMA was... Politically launched into this row because the EU is jealous of the freedom of Brexit Britain and how it's forging ahead with its vaccination programme, and this jealousy manifested itself in a stymieing or an attempted stymieing or a threat to stymie the UK's vaccine rollout.
0: Heady stuff. Yeah, some of it, ha- some of it has been quite extraordinary. I mean, the usual suspects immediately. Uh, said this is political when a number of EU countries, first of all, a small number, but you know it, it grew to, to just over half the member states had uh, paused use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, immediately the fingers were pointed and said this is a political move by the EU in fairness to the other parts of the media here they did jump down very quickly and say hang on this is not the EU the EU's own regulator is saying this vaccine is safe to use this is individual countries Uh, some commentators were going further and saying does this not actually prove that European countries are sovereign in very many areas and don't take their orders from a a a central power in the EU Uh, but be that as it may the subtleties of, of uh, EU constitutional arrangements do t- tend to get lost on a lot of people. Uh, we saw on the front pages on Thursday when this uh, supply problem that has been tr- traced to India and also the just the, the mathematics of trying to expand the um, number of people that you uh, give a first vaccine to at the same time that you have to start vaccinating all the people that you've already vaccinated and give them their second dose, uh, that becomes uh, problematic. So that's why they've hit this uh, speed bump uh, in uh, the, the first real problem of the, the vaccine rollout here. Nevertheless, a couple of the newspapers here, like The Telegraph and The Sun, accompanied their huge uh, headlines saying uh, problems with the vaccination rollout with big, huge photographs of Ursula von der Leyen. Completely different stories, but the visual uh, image uh, that people would have passed on the newsstands would have been vaccine shortage in Britain, Big photograph of von der Leyen. Yep, obviously the EU is to blame for this one again. So the Brexit war uh, has continued by other means uh, and has rolled into uh, the uh, uh, the vaccination uh, question and and the supply of uh, vaccines. Uh, Today, of course, following those rulings from the uh, European Medicines Agency, which was carried live on the. Uh, on some of the uh, TV channels here. Extraordinary. I've never seen uh, European agencies having uh, announcements carried live in that kind of way. Uh, But now that they have said it's uh, safe, there's been a lot of uh, coverage here in Britain leading bulletin saying, yeah, AstraZeneca is safe. Everybody says it's safe. Carry on and and let's use it. Uh, Despite the fact that some of the countries that weren't uh, using this vaccine were uh, Non-EU European states like Iceland and Norway. The Prime Minister has to be said is, I think, trying to damp down uh, some of the uh, more ardent uh, nationalist commentary around things and saying, look, global supply chains have to be protected. This is a global problem. We are all in this together. It's important that we keep uh, vaccines and vaccine technology uh, moving and distributing around the planet, and that. We roll this thing out to everybody because we're none of us are safe until all of us are safe, uh, etc. So I think you know he would rather see the thing damped down. But the uh, the partisans uh, in the media and in politics generally uh, they love nothing better than having a bit of EU bashing. But now, as I said, they've got more enemies to bash: India uh, and even the United States, uh, uh, the Biden regime in particular, which seems rather bizarre. Uh, but there you go. If you're trying to be a global Britain. But going around bashing anybody and everybody uh, uh, in relation to uh, this issue, uh, it doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? But that's the, the, uh, the dichotomies of Brexit. That's the times we
3: live in. On Thursday of this week, a pretty dramatic drop in Irish goods imports from Britain and a not so dramatic drop of irish goods exported into britain but significant enough nonetheless
0: yeah big movements Uh, last week we spoke about the uh, british trade figures for uh, january and uh, now we have the uh, equivalent figures for ireland and it shows the import of british goods into ireland down 65 percent in january compared to january Uh, 12 months previously, and for food imports from Britain, they were down 75%. Now, some people, of course, are saying there is a pandemic effect, and yes, there is a pandemic effect, but uh, food imports from the rest of the European Union, well, sorry, the European Union, uh, other states into Ireland, were only down by 13%, not the 75% the British food imports uh, suffered. So uh, that was a very, very marked uh, effect. Now, there was uh, also a stockpiling effect uh, that would perhaps be more significant, uh, in fact, would be a lot more significant than uh, the COVID. We mentioned last week about this uh, stockpiling that went on by uh, British pharmaceutical companies exporting to Ireland in the final three months of last year. The, the uh, exports to Ireland were up something like 243% in those three months. Well, the flip side of that was a 60% fall in pharmaceutical imports into Ireland in January. So they basically stuck everything they needed into the warehouses before Christmas. uh, So they would be stocked to get them through that difficult uh, period uh, that everybody was expecting in January. Uh, One of the silver linings, I guess, from this potentially uh, has been uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland trade has actually gone up uh, since the uh, end of the transition period. Uh, Imports from Northern Ireland are up by 10 percent and exports from the Republic to Northern Ireland are up by 17 percent. And that probably is uh, entirely a protocol related effect there uh, in that uh, supermarket supplies, which we've spoken about being disrupted, the the Great British sausage shortage uh, going from uh, GB into Northern Ireland, Well, some of those products, the, the meat products in particular, Uh, could be and perhaps have been replaced by supply chain uh, changes uh, inside the island of Ireland itself. So an increase in in north-south trade, it had been generally underweight um, when you compare uh, countries that are sitting side by side. So Northern Ireland-Ireland trade uh, should have been higher than uh, it has been in the past. It certainly seems to have gone up a bit uh, in the month of January because of the uh, issues related to Uh, the UK leaving the customs union and single market and the protocol effects cutting into place again just like those British figures from last week we'll have to say we'll have to wait and see uh, throughout uh, the rest of the year what is permanent and what is temporary.
3: Okay Tony exports and Irish exports in particular and Irish businesses that export is the theme you'll be exploring with this week's guest interview who will you be talking to and what about as myself and Sean depart for the guest room and leave you to it
2: Yeah, I'll be talking to Marina Donoghue, who is a representative with Enterprise Ireland in London. She covers the UK market for Irish companies uh, exporting into the UK and locating in the UK and also Eastern Europe. So I'll be asking her about what the picture is like uh, three months in to Brexit. I think, I think there'll be some surprising findings there. I'm joined by Marina Donoghue, who is the overseas, the Regional Overseas Director of Enterprise Ireland. Marina, very welcome to Brexit Republic. For those of us, uh, for anybody listening who is not familiar with Enterprise Ireland, just explain what Enterprise Ireland does and what your own role is. You're, you're based in London, is that right?
1: That's correct, Tony, and delighted to join your, your podcast. Um, yeah, so Enterprise Ireland is an Irish government agency working with about 4,000 clients across all sectors and um, throughout Ireland and uh, working with them as they grow, helping them innovate and helping them win export sales in global markets. So we have 40 offices globally. I'm based here in London and I cover the UK, the Nordic, Central and Eastern Europe and into Russia. So it accounts for about 40% of all Irish exports at the moment. Um,
2: so we, we've already been talking in the podcast about, you know, a big slump in trade in January between the UK and Ireland. And, you know, famously, Ireland is the country worst affected by Brexit on paper. It's We're three months into Brexit at this stage. What kind of picture has emerged from your vantage point?
1: Well, it certainly has been a period of great change and great uncertainty Um, there has been quite significant um disruption in the market obviously and problems for irish exporters both moving product um you know into the uk but also sourcing material and and, and product from the uk and bringing it back into ireland Um, but i think at this point you know what we have been doing with our clients for many many years uh, is is that preparation piece and encouraging them to look at what needed to be done to to prepare for the, uh, the, the, the problematic situation that we all anticipated so largely we're hearing that a lot of the issues are settling down um, and you know the outlook from a client perspective is actually very positive we had a, uh, a survey there recently of companies that uh, are doing business in the UK and 89% of them saw growth opportunities and four out of five of them Considered their strategy in the UK as a growth strategy, so all of that is very encouraging and very positive.
2: That that seems counterintuitive given the trade disruption. Can, can you just break that down a little bit and give us a sense of why they think there is a positive outlook for Irish companies exporting to the UK?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, the the critical piece is Ireland are, and the UK have a very long-standing trade relationship and you know that that's here to stay that's here to grow there's opportunities continued opportunities in the market it's still our our, our first export market it's our biggest export market so the strategic relevance of it, it delivers 7.9 billion of exports represents about 31 percent of overall global sales so what we are seeing is is companies continue to be committed to the market we're not seeing companies withdraw from it uh the outlook is based on on business opportunity. It's based on sentiment of, of where they're seeing growth and where they're seeing opportunity. And, you know, you consider not just the, the, the proximity of the market, but we have a common language, the sort of the, the the similarities in terms of business practice and culture. And um, so all of those are hugely relevant in terms of holding on to the trade that we have and, and, and continuing to grow. In, in, in future years.
2: People always talk about the agri-food trade between Ireland and the UK, which is famously voluminous and valuable to the to the Irish economy. So far, the UK hasn't put in place its own food safety SPS regime at ports. They've deferred their own um, grace period, if you like, for that. Is there any indication of that sector being hit in the long run, especially once those checks and controls start to bite at UK
1: ports? Well, I think, as you say, the, the, the Brexit impact is very sector specific and, and agri-food is certainly a really key sector for Enterprise Ireland um, and for Irish industry. So we're watching all of this with great interest. The same can be applied to any other sort of product sectors in construction in life sciences and pharma. Um, you know, the the fact that they've prolonged or delayed, should I say, the um, the customs piece is, is welcome in the sense of it gives longer time to prepare and, and be ready. Um, so so these are developments that we're watching with great interest and, and working with our industry with clients to to help prepare and, and to respond to it.
2: Right. Now when you talk about companies that see growth opportunities what sort of field are you talking about there? Is it? Is it, is it green tech? Is it life sciences? Is is it uh, medical technology?
1: It's it's across all of those. And I might just cover two particular ones and, and one which is, is quite COVID related. So, I mean, what has impressed all of us in recent year is the agility of Irish industry to respond so quickly to the COVID um, pandemic and, you know, the innovative solutions that they have done. So here in the UK, We've examples of clients such as Nearform who have their contact tracing app in, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in Jersey. You've SwiftQ, who've been working through the testing vaccine booking systems with NHS trusts. And, and day on, you'll be familiar with with their digital health passport. But looking at more established sectors um, and, and to give you a sense of the size and scale and the opportunity. So construction sector here in, in the UK valued at 120 billion um, And when you look at Irish exports into that sector, it arguably only accounts for about 2% of it. So big opportunity within construction and and particularly in the whole area of, you know, accommodation, uh, residential student, social housing. Uh, You look at the whole digital transformation in the UK and the opportunities around warehousing logistics as e-commerce is and and, and ordering things online is what everybody is doing right now. And, And equally, you look at the. The, the life sciences opportunity, the pharma, so the build around that from a, a construction perspective. So, construction products, services, um, it, it is certainly an area of, of great focus from an Enterprise Ireland market's perspective, and one where we see great opportunity. For-
2: now, obviously, a lot of European companies are struggling with uh, Brexit and the trade barriers that have gone up. Uh, are there opportunities there for Irish companies if the field has been thinned out a bit, or if there are fewer
1: competitors for Irish companies operating
2: in the UK market?
1: I think it's a really good observation and point, and and yes, it's certainly something that we're hearing anecdotally from our clients that the the problematic trading situation in the first couple of months has has resulted in European companies looking closer to home, so uh, that that is giving a competitive advantage to Irish companies. The, the other Point that i'd make in this space is around the common travel area um which which irish clients can benefit of and the european counterparts can't in terms of the movement of of irish nationals in and out to service contracts and, and i think this is particularly relevant for our services companies right across it services healthcare care services and, and indeed construction services
2: now the other uh, side of your regional role is as you say the nordic countries uh, eastern europe and russia the problems with the uh, the uk land bridge have been well documented and we've seen ferry routes opening up is that still a major problem for irish exporters to those european markets
1: i think the addition of so many extra routes from ireland in cork and, and the various different ports into europe is is definitely welcome but i think the land bridge Will continue to be a route for Irish exporters into the UK, into the European market. The the, the shorter distance involved in the travel, the, the the low, you know, the lower cost involved in it as well, versus a, a direct European, is something that we're hearing from our exporters. So the land bridge, I think, will continue, but maybe not at the scale that it has in previous years.
2: And in the same way
1: that Irish exporters to the UK may
2: have fewer European competitors, does the same apply to Irish exporters to the EU, to the EU if there are fewer UK competitors are there any distinct opportunities there
1: There are distinct opportunities and I think one of the points is around you know European firms that might be displacing their UK suppliers that is presenting itself as an opportunity for for our client companies also you know further into the region you look at the the Nordics and you look at the the strength of those economies and and the robustness of those economies through COVID. So we're seeing an interest in our clients looking further north um, and and indeed into kind of Central and Eastern European markets, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked when we've talked before, Marina, that the the issue of, you know, the cultural barriers, the language barriers and so on are still can be still quite prohibitive. Is that still going to be a factor post Brexit?
1: I think it is, but I think the capability of our companies to operate in international markets has definitely been accelerated in, in recent years with the diversification agenda and the fact that they have been over the last ten years looking at other markets, putting a footprint, hiring people on the ground, deepening their their, their language skills of of teams. So. From a capability perspective, there's lots to be encouraged by in terms of the sophistication of Irish exporters in these global markets. Um, Also, when you look at nearer markets, I mean, obviously, Ireland does a lot of business here in the UK, but it also is looking at markets that English is the business language of choice. So, the Nordics I mentioned earlier, the Benelux region, uh, always gets also gets considered in that area, and. You know, this week, a really important week for Ireland with our our national um, holiday, you know, week 50 virtual digital events globally. Um, And and many of them are in the US, which is a hugely critical market for Irish exporters. Um, and, And we are very confident about the continued opportunities for companies to scale and grow. Um, given the innovative solutions that they're offering.
2: Well, that's a positive note. Marina Donoghue, it was a great pleasure to have you on Brexit Republic and thanks so much for your time. Delighted to join and thank you, Tony. So that was Marina Donahue from Enterprise Ireland outlining what life has been like for Irish companies selling into the UK and locating in the UK and, and beyond. So some interesting findings there.
3: OK, so what's coming up on your radar, Sean, for the coming week? Well, I was going to mention about
0: one other thing from last week was uh, David Frost speaking um, at a, a book launch um, about... Uh, Britain leaving the European Union, Uh, what a subject. Uh, He had a little bit of a pop at what he called unreconciled remainers, saying they're like the Jacobites with Guy Verhofstadt as the king over the water. Um, He also had a a bit of a crack at the civil service in Britain that was rather Dominic Dominic Cummings-esque, saying that under their membership of the European Union, the civil service uh, had uh, become... Uh, institutionally paralyzed and used to wait for proposals from the EU and uh, then argue and eventually settle for second best, and that this mentality had spread throughout the rest of the civil service. And what needs to be done now is to get away from this, what he called sapping quality. Uh, of the civil, uh, of EU membership on the civil service, renew them and get a grip, reform the state and our own attitudes and become, quote unquote, a country that can solve problems again. Uh, and this sounded very much like Dominic Cummings when he appeared before a parliamentary committee this week, talking about the necessity to remove the uh, vaccine programme from the Department of Health which he described as a smoldering ruin Uh, and also when he compared it with the what was on offer from the EU he said that had disaster written all over it so we needed to get uh, a specialist task force in place backed by the authority of the Prime Minister. So the dare I say it anti-civil service uh, attitudes that were very much associated with Dominic Cummings do appear to be living on uh, in the uh, government, right in the heart of government, at the cabinet table uh, through Lord Frost. A who former seems civil to be promising servant. A, co- a former civil servant. Uh, and he seems to be prom- promising us a continuation of the revolution. So what am I looking forward to next week? I'm looking forward to a continuation of the revolution, if you don't mind. Tony?
2: Yeah, uh, not too many revolutions over here in Brussels. Um, There'll be a foreign ministers meeting uh on Monday, General Affairs Council, which is Europe, European Affairs Ministers' meeting. I mean, everything's being dominated by COVID at the moment. Of course, the vaccine rollout uh, continues to simmer. Um, we we had the big uh, issue of AstraZeneca and the European Medicines Agency this week. That whole question about blood clots and the how that might affect people. Now, that 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 is, in a sense, being put to rest to a degree by the EMA uh, on Thursday saying that the vaccine was safe and effective. Clearly, most member states are now saying, OK, fair enough, there is a minor risk possibly, but the the risk of death from COVID is more important uh, and that's something we should bear in mind. And so the pressure is on now to try and really get this vaccine rollout moving uh, especially in the second quarter when we are promised that there will be much higher volumes coming in from Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna and of course Johnson & Johnson. 55 million of the one-shot doses will be coming on stream into Europe in the second quarter. EU leaders will be meeting in person next week for their spring European Council Thursday and Friday. Micheál Martin will be here in Brussels. In person to talk to other EU leaders, and again, that's going to be dominated by COVID-19 and vaccines. Brexit is not on the menu, but they say you know, we, we can. They say, but again, they'll probably make some kind of announcement or reference to the UK having to be back in compliance with the protocol and solution-orientated work uh, continuing uh, by officials.
3: Okay, well that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoing, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan
0: in London.
2: And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.